Welcome to another episode of the SNR podcast. I'm your host, Salima Ismail. Today on the show, you'll hear from Barb Spreadbury, an incredibly accomplished HRO expert at Safe and Reliable Healthcare, whose logical perspective, combined with her pursuit of continuous growth and improvement, has led her to make a mark on many organizations on their own HRO journey. So please, enjoy. I grew up in a small town in Upper Peninsula, Michigan. So the high school I was in, um, we had no advanced classes or anything like that. You know, there was just physics or geometry, whatever. And I always did very well in those classes. So when you took aptitude tests, one of the things they would look at is your gender and place any results segmented by gender. So for girls, math capability was teacher or nurse. For boys, it was engineering. And I I feel like things have come back around, though, because now I'm teaching nurses and doctors and others. And I look back, and I've often said this to my family, had I been able to do it all over again, I actually think I would have gone in to be an architect. But that was just never considered a possibility. And it wasn't until I got into college that I realized there are so many other ways to expand my brain, and there was challenges. And so That excited me and continued on my schooling today. So Barb went into nursing school, but learned something about herself that modified her trajectory. I realized that I loved healthcare, not a big fan of hands-on nursing or hands-on care because I was worried I would hurt somebody. The fear of hurting someone in healthcare was... I think related to the first patient I was assigned in the hospital as a student nurse, and it was the, one of the college football players. And he was in there with a broken leg and was all uh, you know, kind of strung up. They did traction at that time. And I was supposed to give him just do his vital signs and, and do the, you know, the, the obligatory hand bath. And just the worry of even moving him around and potentially causing harm just really unsettled me. And so that's where it kind of introduced me to the idea that I love what happens in healthcare and what we're able to do. I just personally wasn't comfortable doing it myself. This anecdote makes it clear that patient safety was a priority for Barb from the very beginning, setting her out on her path. And the degree she chose to pursue gave her another advantage in her career. And well, and the other thing I was going to point out about my undergrad degree, it's the only healthcare degree that I was aware of at the time that combined a technical expertise, so health information management, but also taught management. So when you think about it, like pharmacists, they go to pharmacy school, they learn how to be a pharmacist. In order to get management training, they have to go on and get additional training. Same way with lab techs, nursing even. So it immediately set me up to be a manager. So as she was finishing up school, one of Barb's professors, Eleanor Brewer, recognized her talents and approached Barb with a great opportunity. She was leaving the school to go start a a brand new hospital in the suburbs of Chicago called Good Samaritan. And she was going to run the medical records department. And she invited me to come and work for her as a supervisor in that department. Now, you know, training is one thing. And I, you know, accepted the role. I started at the hospital two months before it opened, got a chance to hire my own staff and set up procedures and buy equipment. But, you know, that was all taking the textbook and making it real. But luckily, I had this wonderful mentor, Eleanor Brewer. 
Eleanor was such an incredible mentor that I had a great role model and I always had someone I could approach and bounce ideas off of her and see what the approaches were. I remember asking her once about how does she decided what to say yes to and what to not? Because in a brand new hospital, there's a lot of new opportunities and roles to take on because not everything was you know carved into this is the way we've always done it or this automatically goes with this role. And her advice at the time was think about what's important to the organization. And if it is, and it's something you want to do, then go after it. After two and a half years in this position, Barb was invited to become the director of medical records at another new hospital and learned a very valuable lesson when she was in charge of the transition to early electronic medical systems you can't automate a non-system. And we are notorious in healthcare about everything is a one-off. We've gotten much, much, much better on that. But what we tried to do was use systems to account for every nuance or, or unique capability by whether it's organization or by physician or by nursing unit. And that just adds a whole part of redundancy and complexity to the systems that don't need to be there. When we were initially implementing that system, every surgeon had their own set of orders for the same procedure, for appendectomies or whatever it was. There was no effort at that time to pull them together and say, what's the best order set based on evidence, knowing you can always modify it because of a unique patient need, but there's got to be a common set. And what was happening, in fact, was each surgeon brought the order set they were taught in school by their mentor. And so the systems were expected to accommodate then when in reality, it, it made it more clunky and, and not responsive to the needs. What Barb uncovered here is the flaw in the mentality of trusting the human element when it comes to high reliability. The human element around high reliability, we in medical care have always depended that to be perfect, you just depend on whoever's doing it. As long as they have the competency and the training, they will do it right. And it's only since we've started understanding high reliability from other industries are we even acknowledging that that you can't, that's not a reliable approach. And there's so many things that factor into a human act actually even being somewhat reliable. For example, the limit on training hours for physicians, the understanding that a human being cannot work for 48 hours straight and be expected to be reliable, that took a lot, long time in our industry to change and realize, but it has to for the safety of patients. As a supervisor, Barb actually experienced firsthand the shortcomings of a work environment that relied on human perfection. We supervise people with the idea that we could increase the reliability of what we do by just having people try harder. If they would just try harder or work harder, if they would just be more vigilant or, you know, if they would just remember more. And we didn't even think about the condition of the in individual when they come to work. Did they have enough to sleep? Did they have other things going on in their mind? And as a result, we typically ended up with the same care we had always been provided and Things didn't get better, but the worst part is we had unhappy employees so that they couldn't contribute to the workforce because they were afraid that they would make a mistake and, and be viewed that they weren't trying hard enough or being more vigilant and could potentially lose their job. So it wasn't a real rewarding type of work environment. Not only was this mentality hindering her team's joy in work, 
it was proving to be dangerous. Because of the way we set up the work structure, people would be afraid to tell us when things could go wrong. We call those near misses or great catches, where we were just lucky that someone intervened before a true problem had occurred. But people would be afraid even to tell us about those situations because for fear that they could be labeled as a problem person who wasn't as smart or wasn't as good and therefore couldn't be depended on. Fortunately, it became more acceptable to think about it differently. So, as the whole thinking about high reliability began to be introduced in healthcare, and it had been in other industries for quite some time, we realized that instead of saying who did something wrong, is what went wrong, and how do we adjust the process going forward so the risk of that is much reduced. On one side, it's a relief to realize that it's not my personal choice to do something wrong. It could mean I was trying to do five things at the same time, and so the chance of error went up. But then the other part is then how do we improve the reliability of what we do? How do we change it so that the humans operating in it can be more reliable and do the right thing? And the answer to that is to create systems that are conducive to identifying issues and striving for improvement. However, putting this into action required a complete change in thinking. Here is Barb describing how she witnessed a change from a quality management mindset to a continuous improvement mindset with respect to managing the infection rate in a hospital. We used to believe in healthcare that infections were just a natural result of treatment. So, for example, when a patient had a surgery, there was an assumption that just a certain percentage would get a surgical site infection, and that's just what happens. And when they did happen, then there would be an investigation in and to see what happened. But oftentimes the conclusion was, well, you know, things happen like that. It's the risk of taking action. And we called that quality management what we were doing. We were looking for how things are being done if we were managing to that level, but there was no expectation around improvement. And that when things fell off from a performance level, we would check into why that happened and come to a conclusion that, well, did something different, so we'll just put that back in place. But there was no actual drive or improvement or expectation around improving it, going above and beyond the level that we had had in the past. And then there was a change in thinking, and there was a whole host of people involved with that, but I'd say it'd be like in the last 20, 25 years, where the recognition is that we can do better, we can eliminate infections. And in fact, we know how to do that because there's been enough scientific study and published reports that have demonstrated when certain sites take specific actions, then the infection rate goes down. So the acceptance in the clinical world around, well, that just happens, to no, let's figure out how we can stop that from happening and how do we reduce the risk of that happening. And the question now becomes more, are we consistently applying the proven practices that will reduce the infections in this case? That's a much more comforting kind of approach for the caregivers, the clinicians, and should be also for patients is to realize we're not settling for the way it's always been, but that we're working on continuous improvement of getting better. The added benefit of continuous improvement is that when you apply those principles, you can make some tangible and meaningful changes. 
One example about a difference that Barb made was when she participated in the Intermountain Advanced Training Program while working for Baylor Health. I was partner with a family physician that was part of the Baylor Healthcare System. And so she and I attended the class and we had a project we had to do. And she chose improving the rate of patients obtaining a colonoscopy when they are recommended to do it. I believe it's over age 50. And if anyone knows colonoscopies, they're not a fun thing. And so she was finding that she'd recommend that they do it and they go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they would just go home and they would never schedule. What got to her is then occasionally she would end up patients coming back under her care who had to be treated for colon cancer, which could have been totally avoided by having the colonoscopy. Barb worked with the physician and her team and decided to approach the project using the plan, do, study, act method. Here's Barb explaining how that works. Plan to Study Act is a very simple version of how we do continuous improvement. So if you want to improve the results on anything, this could be how fast you do a walk or anything you want to improve on, you can use this model. And we do it certainly in healthcare. So we start out with plan, P. So you think about what could I do differently? What do I need to change? Do means that you try it out. Say you make a change. If you want to increase your speed at which you walk a certain distance around your neighborhood, you would try it at a different time of day or try it with different shoes, something simple like that. So you would do it and you would do it for a defined period. So a week or two weeks. And then you would study S. That's where you would then stop and reflect. Did the change you made make a difference? I mean, did your time improve? What are some things you observed about it? You really take that time to reflect. And then based on what your study told you, you act. It could be, yeah, that worked great. I'm going to keep it up. I'm going to keep going at that time of day for my walk. Or, you know, these shoes are great. And now I'll try another change. So we use it. And the acronym is PDSA. But it can apply in anything we do. So when Barb applied it to the project, this is what they came up with. We brainstormed all the reasons why patients don't do this test. And, you know, it'd be anything like, well, they've heard it's uncomfortable. They don't want to schedule the time off. Depending on their insurance cover, it could be expensive. You know, all those different reasons. That was part of the planning. So what the team came up with as far as a trial is, what if we tried scheduling for the patient the colonoscopy before they left the physician's office during a primary visit? And in order to do that, we'd have to set up a relationship with several different gastroenterologists who would be willing to make the appointment with them right there on the spot, you know, set up a process to do it. So the group agreed to do that, said, let's try that for a couple of weeks. She reached out to some of her gastroenterologist friends. They said, yes, they'd be trying to do it. So instead of the patient going home and then having to schedule it, they'd say, okay, when would you like to do it? We can schedule it right here. So we did that for about a month. And when we went back to study it, we found that patient's compliance with getting a colonoscopy out of this physician's office had increased from 67% to 93%. For those of you who didn't do the arithmetic, that is a 26% improvement in patient compliance over only a month with this new system. And to me, that's what really made a difference because I knew by the fact that the people that were getting those colonoscopies, there were some that their lives were being saved because of it. And me, who's not in part of healthcare, I'm not a clinician. The fact that I could contribute to that made a big difference. And with this method, any organization could make a substantial positive impact on their outcomes. 
but they have to commit to this one thing. It's taking the time to think about doing it differently. There's, there's so much going on in everyone's worlds and everybody's so busy. Just being afforded that chance to be able to try something new to make it better is so important. People are running so fast just to get through the day that there isn't any planned improvement time to make it better. But it's what I see is so encouraging is that organizations now are building improvement into that hurried activity so that there's actually dedicated time on a nursing unit for an improvement team to work on something and to engage their colleagues in it or in an imaging department to look at better ways of turnaround time for results because they know patients are waiting for those results. So like anything that you have to actually plan and make time for improvement in order for it to make it happen. If you would like to contact Barb or would like to submit any questions or comments about the podcast, please email podcast at srh.care. That's all for today. The Safe and Reliable podcast was produced by me, Salima Ismail. Our theme music was produced by MonkeyMan535 from freesound.org. Special thanks to Barb Spreadbury, Chad Lenenga, and Elnor Jamal. And a very special thanks to you for tuning in. See you again soon.